Greetings from the Humongous, the Lord Humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller! I am gravely disappointed. Again you have made me unleash my dogs of war. Look at what remains of your gallant scouts. Why? Because you're selfish. You hold your gasoline. You will not listen to reason. Now my prisoners say, you plan to take your gasoline out of the wasteland. You send them out this morning to find a vehicle. A rig big enough to hold that fat tank of gas. What a puny plan. Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? Bartek is doing very well. How is Ryan doing? That's you. I don't know. It's hard to know how you're doing, really. I'm doing okay for now, but maybe in the next five seconds I'll be feeling happier. Mm, Ryan had a had a really tough life after. Nope, not feeling happier. After, um... I counted the seconds, it didn't get any happier. After the petrol situation, and the government people were talking, and then his family got killed, and then uh-huh. he became Leatherman. Leatherman, yes, 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 the, the leather warrior. <laughs> <sighs> Alright, we are spitting polished likingly, because we are always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. Any Polish facts for us for this one? Anything Polish going on? Um, wasn't Max's last name in the first film Polish? Yep. Yep. There you go. That's a good one. That's pretty good. Yeah. Good fact. I'm feeling happy now. I'm feeling happy now (laughs) with all these facts that Bardek dispenses. Uh, Remember the Polish word? Fucked. Fucked. There you go. Fucked is plural. I'm feeling fucked there. All right. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing Pictures Powwow, the show where we discuss a movie that has come recommended. I recommended the movie. Our cycle goes Bartek, then me, then you. That's right. You, the listening person, can recommend the film. Hit us up on the social media or the email. All of that is in the description below. At the end of this episode, we're going to hear what the listening people selected. Are we? I'm getting croaky. Well, I I am gonna hear, I'm gonna hear the listening people are gonna hear, but you, Ryan, will be saying. I will be saying I'm getting croakier because I'm getting ready for my Australian discussion of a Aussie cult, oh, an Aussie classic. We got to hear your your bad Australian accent. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. We got to we got to put on our Australian accent. We got to put on our Australian accents. You 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 hone in on your romper stomper style accents. Where you're from Footscray, mm-hmm. and I'll and I'll hone in on my uh, uh, crocodile Dundee accent, where he was from the Northern Territory, I do believe he was somewhere up there. Probably, probably, mate. Uh, put another shrimp on the barbie. We don't <laughs> do that, by the way. No Australian does that. That's a lie. We don't drink Fosters either. That's a lie too that we spread to you. But we are talking about Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior. The Road Warrior. We're revisiting the Mad Max franchise. Bartek, do you want to kind of go over your relationship with the Mad Max franchise for those who are not caught up? Yes. So prior to literally the day of this recording, I had only ever seen the original Mad Max. I've seen it twice. Once when I was a teenager and once for this podcast earlier the year that we're recording Mm -hmm. this. 
2022, and uh, I'd seen Fury Road in the cinema uh, with my dad when I was visiting Poland last time or two times ago. Any lector? Uh, no, 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 no. It was, it was in no. English whenever they spoke. Okay. Yep. <laughs> the two times. Yep. So I'd only seen the first one and the currently newest one, and now I have seen the second one, which is the big famous one. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Fury Road's big famous, but yeah. this was the big one for the long time. This was the the best Mad Max movie. Like, what is Mad Max? This film mm. was often heralded. What is a successful implementation of Mad Max? This was it. When Forever. I, yeah, when I saw the first Mad Max, I was familiar with some of the, you know, tropes of the franchise. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of it kind of thinking, oh, that wasn't, you know, what all those, you know, pop culture things was like. But then at the end of this one, I'm like, oh, yep, that's that's Mad Max. Now this, <laughs> now this is a Mad Max. You call that a knife, this is a knife. See, we're going back to Crocodile Dundee. No. That will be the next episode. Probably no, not really. No, no one's It'll be your next recommendation. To make it Aussie, for sure. Uh, yeah, Mad Max, I've grown up with these films. I've always enjoyed them. Mad Max 2 was always the standout for me, as it is for many people. It is uh, thrilling. It's funny. It has great action. It is not afraid to be brutal and nihilistic at points. And yeah, it is George Miller getting to do what he wanted to do. You can clearly tell when you watch the Mad Max movies in order of their release that this is the one where it's like, this is what he wanted to make. First Mad Max is him trying to figure it out it's like his first feature film he's he's doing all of this he's he's you know it's a it's a ragtag effort and they're doing a little character story but it's really about that world it's about this desolate world with these bandits and people on the road with their absurd cars and their outfits and just everybody looking out for themselves and can you break past that mentality and this is the best version of that for the longest time. Obviously, Fury Road exists now, and we will obviously talk about Fury Road in relation to this some point in this discussion, because a large part of looking at Road Warrior now is just seeing that uh, Fury Road was George Miller just saying, I could do it better now. Like, I could do the Road Warrior, but better. Like, bigger and better. Yeah. Like, can I do the last 15 minutes of the movie for the whole runtime of the movie? And can I strip back on the dialogue even more for Max, where he says less and less and less? And there are some visual things from this that you see transfer over to future films, and uh, like in Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road, like, like uh, for instance, the, the guys tied up to the front of the car mm. on uh, uh, Humongous's car. You obviously have that. That's what Max is all happening to him in Fury Road to begin with, where he's chained to the front of the car with a big mask, yeah. and they're draining yeah. his blood and it just it's an expansion of this idea which was small here it was a small but memorable visual and it becomes a big point of uh of visuals and story mechanics in that film but mad max 2 the road warrior if you have not seen this film well watch it it's kind of hard to say spoilers because the story is very simple, but you don't want to get spoiled on what the atmosphere is like. It's kind of hard to even describe it. It's like 
you have to watch it for yourself to get embroiled in what this is giving up. And if you've only seen, say, Fury Road or, like Bartek, the first Mad Max film, this definitely takes a step in a far different direction than either of those films do in terms of tone and atmosphere. Yeah, this isn't one of the ones where we're going to begin uh, our discussion saying, oh, please, please make sure you watch the movie first because we don't want you to get spoiled on it like we would have with, mm. um, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, Bad Genius, for example. Right. Um, this is one where if someone gave you a full outline of the plot and the twists and everything like that, you know, there's still just the execution is the experience. Right. So, Bartok, talk to me. What was your experience watching this film? Yeah, I had a decent time with it. Um, I can't remember if I talked about it in the first Mad Max discussion that we did. Um, Never really been too into, you know, this kind of, this type of post-apocalyptic storytelling. Um, You know, the the whole, you know, punk aesthetic uh, mixed with uh, post-apocalyptic. Never been too crazy about that. And even, you know, watching this film now... It very much was a, okay, this is where all that came from kind of experience. Um, but yeah, the, the storytelling of this one was quite gripping. I really enjoyed the sort of, I know it's very loose. It's literally the beginning and end of the film, but like the framing device of Mm -hmm. like the, the very deep, nice sounding voice, like, you know, telling us who this Max character is, the, this understanding that some outside force has of Max. Um, and then throughout the film, we see like, oh, this is literally what Max goes through. And then the narration at the very end uh, gives it a very, he describes it as like the legend of the road warrior. And mm. even though, you know, we were seeing the the literal events of what this legend was doing in the film, it did give it this like, ooh, sort of surreal quality. Folks, like a folk tale. Yeah. Uh, almost a fairy tale-esque thing, which... The third film leans into a lot. Let's just go, <laughs> let's just leave it there. Let's just leave it at that. Sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, the narration frames it very well. It gives context to things. Where in the first Mad Max, there was a lot of subtextual things going on. Society was dying. It was on the decline and people were turning to violence far more and then this one gives you all of the exposition up front where it's like ran out of oil people are already becoming shitty at each other war was on the brink and just we just kept indulging and embracing our worst traits and here we are today i I was happy with that especially since it actually showed footage from Mm. mad max one and actually talked about it a little bit Mm -hmm. so even though mad max one you know seems like not everyone is too big on it Mm -hmm. um especially not everyone's seen it not everyone's seen it especially if you're american that seems to be doubly so um, so it, it's still giving it a sense of presence in the film by showing some footage from it and also giving us a basic idea of what happened in it. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was surrounded by all this new information, like I remember for the longest time having only seen the first and last film, um, talking to you, you knew more about it because you've seen the whole franchise. You were telling me like what the actual event that created this world was and i was like oh so that's what it was and then this film just outright tells me at the beginning so it's like okay Mm -hmm. so it's not so big a secret for most people it's the first thing they learn when they watch the film right or the franchise uh what did you think about since we're talking about the narration as that framing device what did you think about the 
uh, reveal of who was the narrator all along? Did you guess that? Did you figure that out? Or was that a piece of information that was delivered to you at the end that came as a genuine little surprise? Um, to be honest, it wasn't really a huge factor in my enjoyment of the film because, again, the narration was at the very beginning of the film. And very end, yeah. And then very end, so I almost forgot about it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even really expecting that the film was going to end on the narration, but I guess in retrospect it's interesting, especially yeah. that whole last line of, like, and we and I that was the last I ever saw of him, mm -hmm. you know, that kind As of thing. As he fades into the distance. Yeah, yeah. so if I would ever rewatch this film, you know, listening to that narration... Uh, knowing that this is from the perspective of someone who actually met Mad Max and actually mm. had a, uh, I'll, I'll use the word intimate experience with him. Like, you know, he was with Max for a lot of the climax throughout mm -hmm. the film. They had some sort of relationship going on. And to add to that fairy tale or folk tale type legend of Max, this is a story from the viewpoint of a child. A child is t like this character is the the feral kid and this retelling is from that feral kid who's all grown up and this is him reflecting back on this weird little incident he had as a kid and he's blowing it up to be this far more magnificent thing than what it really is because that's what i love about the mad max world is max himself is very blunt and straightforward and everybody attaches kind of like um or projects onto him like sentimental idealisms onto him and he's mm. just like i'm just here for the gas i do not have any care about any of this like yeah like, that's that's well, what yeah that's yeah. what i meant by like you know we get the flowery narration at the beginning and end mm -hmm. but then the middle of the film is very literal yeah it's like yeah this is just a guy doing a thing but the the way that the narration is delivered really does give it a sort of like ooh mystical quality to it fairy tale quality yeah, as you're and saying but that's every character around Max. Like, the bad guys think of Max as far more, like, big than he is. And then the, 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 the guys, the, the good guys mining the gas, think far more fondly of him than any reasonable person should. I mean, every... And this is why it's like... There's this element of having the narration at the beginning and an end where it's told by this, you know, the little kid who is here for it idealizing him and kind of propping him up more than what we actually see in the movie where what we see in the movie is just a dude who's selfish and then he slightly isn't anymore but even mm. then he's not that selfless at the end either he's still a loner he's just like oh i've lost my dog I'm alone now mm. with just my car. You know, not even my car. But, my but, car's but, gone yeah, too. But, but even when he does do things, you know, for the benefit of others, like the the leader mm. of the, uh, what what are they called? The people in the settlement. Yeah, I can't remember. The, the leader of the settlement. You know, even after he's given Max the whole like, oh, you're alone, a guy thing. He does tell someone, well, he's honourable. He followed through on the contract. So, yeah. you know, Max isn't really cheating people out of it. No. There is, you know, you can make a deal with this guy. Yeah, but he doesn't have... Like, he has a minor code of honour. That's what makes him a great character. That's what makes him the, the, the cowboy or the samurai-type character that he is, where he says very little. He's, he's motivated through selfish means, but he does have a code of honour that makes sense to him. But people... That's what I love about the this world especially from this point on. You didn't get this as much in the first Mad Max, but from this point on more, you have everybody kind of projects something onto Max, but he isn't doing any of it. Like, he isn't 
these things fully. Like, like the bad guys think of him as like this big foe that they have to really take down. And yet Max did barely anything to these guys. Like mm. the Mohawk guy. Uh, he hates Max. He fucking loathes him. And it's like, but he didn't kill your lover. The little kid did. <laughs> but he's like, he's so angry at Max throughout this whole movie because he he's, he had his little his little tit for tat for him at the beginning. But like, Max did nothing but drive his car. <laughs> like, or oh, whenever he was feeling upset, he, his eyes were always on Max. So I guess he's just, you know. Uh, fixated. Conditioning himself to like, oh, I'm pissed off when I look at Max. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of that, like the leader sees so much in this guy who's just like, dude, I just want some gas. I just, I, my, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, or, and that demonstrates Max's lack of humanity because that's a big part of it. He, he lacks humanity, then through the adventures he gains some more, and by the end you question did he gain any or did he lose any where's he at by the end we can talk about it but i love the scene where they him and the gyro uh copter captain guy are looking at the car being shot down and the the two the lady and the guy being ripped out of the car and them just raping her and attacking him and they're, they're just looking yeah they're basically looking at a variation of a scene from the first film they're looking at horror and they are just looking at it and they're not like, Max in particular isn't that emotionally torn up about it. It doesn't really affect him. He's just, like, waiting for the moment of, now I can go down there and get the gas. Mm. Uh, he goes down there, and it's just like, there's this naked woman. She's dead. He just walks past her, doesn't doesn't really acknowledge that that's not important. Walks over, and the guy's like, oh, thank God you've come to save me. And he's like, I'm just here for the gasoline. That's all I'm here for. I'll make a deal with you, but that's what I'm here for. And it's just like... He needs to grow because this is all he is. He's, he's he is vermin. He is just living on instinct and just driving through life without any real purpose. He's no longer even mad, Max. Like at the end of the first one, where he was like mad and driven and kind of insane. Now he's just like apathetic, Max. Just dead, deadened to he, the world. He, he was a little bit of a smiley, smiley Max when he found the music box. Yeah, he likes a little music. He was also a little smiley every time he had a good uh, a good time uh, with his dog. Mm. He, he loved his dog a lot. <laughs> who He loved so much he just called him dog. Uh, you don't need to name him. He loves Columbo. He loves Columbo. Well, loved Columbo. We all love Columbo. We all love Columbo. Um, so... Tell me more about your experience with Mad Max 2. You said that you aren't a huge lover of this type of post-apocalypse, but every time we've done it on the pod, you've seemed to enjoy it. You love Dead End Drive-In, mm-hmm. which was this. I kept mentioning, it's just Mad Max. And you're like, <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, you seem to enjoy them somewhat on the pod thus far. I guess maybe it's that I, I don't really have a... a too big of a drive to go see them but maybe when i do watch them like i have a good time pun intended you had no drive to go see them (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) baby it was unintended but let's go with intended um i do remember when i finished watching uh fury road with my dad who my dad didn't like it um and I I had good things to say about it, but it was more so in like, you know, objective technical aspects. I'm like, oh, that was a good one. Um, yeah, it, it's very clear that a lot of work goes into these films, you know, a lot of costuming, uh, finding locations that are appropriate for the, the films, cars. the vehicles, the, the fashion to them. Mm. It, it is definitely a visual spectacle just seeing things, you know, all come together. And especially in this scene, this movie, 
uh, with all the long shots of like when they're up on the hill looking down and there's just like huge scene happening here. You can't really get a close look at everything, but there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, it does feel very, you know, almost dangerous. It almost, uh, this might be a bit more relevant for you since you're playing like Metal Gear Solid right mm. now, but like when you're scoping out a place that you have to sneak through and you're mm. just like, okay, well, well, how are we going to do this thing? Like I was getting vibes like that. Um, when we first saw that settlement with the bus, you know, mm. as the gate and just looking around and then you're following the car go over to find the people. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of really good locations and, I guess, blocking going on, I'm saying. And we know another aspect, too, to appreciate, to, to really hammer in on that is something that people don't associate as being difficult as much, which is lack of dialogue to construct a movie with this much of uh, sparse dialogue and yet still have it be a coherent story there's enough dialogue for you to understand who the people are and what the stakes are but he's indulging and in exploring what it is like to tell this type of story this post-apocalyptic thing the fairy folktale thing and this character study with lacking dialogue, with just visuals, with the long shots, relying on the actor's physicality and the audience's intelligence to pick up subtleties, rather than just having dialogue just explain it all. Another highlight for me, uh, that um, I have a dark sense of humour, as do you, so some things that are funny to me aren't necessarily funny to other people, but a moment that brings me laughter because it's just like perfectly encapsulates the Mad Max universe is when Humongous is uh, stringing up the guys that they've captured and they're setting them on fire uh, in the in the distance at night mm-hmm. and they're screaming and all of the the settlers, all of the, the, them are looking on in horror and Max is just at his car eating dog food and he just kind of looks over and he's like, eh, yeah, and just keeps eating dog food. Just like, yeah, that's happening over there. All right, and just keeps because mm. this is nothing new to him. Like the horror doesn't matter anymore. The most like emotionally complex things that nibble at him is when people have goes at him for being like this emotionally vacant person. Like when the leader jabs at him for like, oh, you think you've suffered more than anybody else? Oh, you've lost a family. I've lost a family. He doesn't like that. He he reacts with violence to that. But then the other being uh, another emotional high point for him is. Uh, when the tanker does crash and fall over and everybody leaves and he just sees that it's pouring out dirt and he's just like, huh. He see, he's just really confused. He's like, what? Like, <laughs> what, did, what? Huh, okay, right. And that's kind of it. Like everything else, that's another thing to appreciate too is this is where you have a good actor and good director stepping in. You have a character that's very internal emotionally, and you could say emotionless, apathetic, and yet you have to still make them a compelling character, and that's how spaghetti westerns work so well. That's how people like Clint Eastwood work so well as actors, for instance, where you have the silent protagonist who's grizzled and they don't really, they're cynical and you have to make them people that you want to follow. And all the problems Mel Gibson has associated with him are all valid, but he was a charismatic on-screen presence. He's a good actor. I think he's a bad guy, but he is very talented at his job and he has 
what, 13 lines of dialogue, I think it's stated in the trivia in this, and yet you can't take your eyes off of the guy. He is that charismatic, like, he is that enrapturing, playing an, an, a guy that you would never actually want to spend any time with. Max is this horrible guy that you wouldn't want to spend any time with, but boy does Mel Gibson capture that quality of these leads do, like your Clint Eastwoods, like your Kurt Russells, like your, you know, so on and so forth, uh, uh, Glenn Fonda's, where it's like, you don't need dialogue, you just have these actors and their body language and their face carries it all. I have to say, for this one, it didn't even really feel like he had that few lines. Like, it mm. felt like he... Oh, maybe they just spaced them out really well that it kind of felt like he was talking more frequently than he was. Like, I know that there was one trivia point saying, like, oh, the longest line he had was the one where he was calling the attention of everyone back to him. It's like, oh, if you want this done, you know, I'm the guy to talk to. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, the dialogue is spread out in the right places. It's because what he has to say is important. And... Even without the dialogue, you understand his dynamics to every other character he interacts with. Yeah. Him and the kid get on. They don't speak any real lines of dialogue to each other to enforce that. You just see it. You just go, yeah, he gives them the little music box and there they are. They've got this camaraderie. They've got this bond that will last through the film. He also appreciates the kid's little boomerang. <laughs> he likes the boomerang. There was one moment where it was when he came back to the settlement and the lady was like, oh, I'm sorry about what I did before. I said it before, you know, I was wrong about you and he had like no reactions. Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, Max doesn't need that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, an aspect that I think makes us stand out from the other Max movies, including Fury Road. Fury Road's gorgeous to look at. Like it's a, it's a piece of art. It's so colorful and vibrant and amazing action. But what I really like about Mad Max Two, out of all of the others, is the color palette of the film. Very desaturated, very dry, very dulled, but it still pops in mm, that way. Yeah. And as Australians we just naturally look at the environments he's in and just go, yeah, that's that's how it is. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Like, when he's just driving and you just see, like, dirt along the road, but then there's just, like, little little patches of grass, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I drive out somewhere, there's always that stretch of road somewhere when you're going between the city and the country, which is like, yeah, more it kind of dies, and then there's just like, oh, there's some grass. The color of the dirt is very, uh, very obviously striking, where you have that reddish dirt, but then in other places, you have this really pale brown dirt, which is very, very, like, this is home. This is what I see a lot when I'm driving about places. It's like sunburnt dirt. Yeah, sunburnt sun dried dirt. dirt. <laughs> sun dried dirt. Um, uh, what did you think about the overall uh, visuals of this? Because that is a huge appeal of this is the visuals of the costumes and the cars and the landscapes and the hairstyles and the world how it's pre presented visually. Because as we've said through our Mad Max discussions, George Miller is very much a visually driven director and storyteller. So what did you think of all of that? Yeah, thinking back to Fury Road, like I don't remember too many specific things about it, but I do remember that it had that really big um, you know, sandstorm scene where mm -hmm. you could just barely see anything. And thinking back on that film, uh 
that film had a lot of very veiled scenes, like a lot of scenes at night where they're driving around, scenes where, like, dirt's all around them. But this one, I'm thinking to all the scenes where, like, everything's really clear. Like, that scene I was talking about before where you see the landscape, um, it really made it stand out when you saw all the cars driving. They were leaving, like, you know, clouds of dirt behind them, mm-hmm. um, even in the climax scene. So, yeah, the, the fact that everything is, you know, kind of so clear in this film makes the colours pop, and it definitely, yeah, the the landscapes are something I'm going to remember from this one majorly. Mm. Um, and, yeah, even, like, the mise-en-scene of, like, the settlement. Like, when you see it from a distance, like, on top of that hill, it doesn't look all that big, but then once you're there, there's, like, oh, you know, things happening everywhere. Yeah, right. And, and the party was like, how can they keep these guys out of there? But then once you go to ground level, you're like, actually, this is pretty difficult to get into. Mm. Uh, to To even strike further upon the visuals, I mean... You said it earlier, but when you finished the movie, you're like, ah, yes, this is this is the Mad Max that you had in your, like, that pop culture has shoved into your head. Yeah. And for me, and I'm curious to hear for you, what is that? Like, what is that? Uh, for me, it was a visual thing of the, the costumes, where you have the leather jacket with the one arm off and the leg brace on, and you have the freaky, kinky bad guys with the arseless chaps and the hockey mask with the throbbing head, and, like, basically what I'm saying is Borderlands wouldn't exist without... Yeah, it, for me, this, it's, right? it's definitely, like, the bad guys. Well, yeah, it's the bad guys, but even, like, Max's look with that car... It's like that fucking beautiful car that gets destroyed in this movie and it brings a tear to my eye every time. <laughs> but like, you know, you have Max where he has like the little silver, silvery blonde streak on the side of his head in this one. I like that. I like um, uh, like the leg brace, which is a nice bit of continuity. I, I brought this up in the first Mad Max where there's continuity with his injuries. So he got his leg fucked up in the previous movie. Now he has his big leg, like this big brace around his leg. I like one of my favorite little gags or little touches was when he had um, all of the barrels of uh, guzzoline for himself. And uh, they're like, anything else we can do for you? And while he's, uh, while he's about to answer that, a guy walks over and like greases his leg brace for him. I thought that was a nice little <laughs> moment there. But, um, you know, you have his outfit, which is from the first film, but obviously time has degraded it. So now his precious gloves, they're missing some fingers, they've got holes in them. His leather jacket that we love so much from that first movie has just got one arm ripped off of it. And he just looks awesome. Like Max himself just looks fucking great. But you're right, it's the bad guys. That visual aesthetic is just so striking. Why do you think that is? And does that still work for you now, considering how much pop culture is kind of taken from this? I think what works about it is that they do look just absolutely crazy. You know, they, they've got the, the sort of BDSM kind of aesthetic going on. Um, a lot of them do act like hoons, you know, all the chains, the things going on. They have this look to them, but then you still have moments where they do still seem human. You, like, separate <laughs> it from, you know, like a, a stylized horror film where, oh, man, this the, these characters are completely inhuman. This is just a villain to be defeated. But in this film... You know, like when they're getting, when they're reacting to something and they're all like doing their own thing and they get mm. into the mode of doing it, like them just running to their cars. You know, there is this real like human team level of coordination going on. It's like, oh, this is the situation we're in right now. We know exactly how to handle this. So mm. there is like this 
weird sense of humanity or or human nature that they have to them, um, even though they look so crazy and they're act vile. so crazy and they're mm. vile. Um, like when Max goes through their their camp and it knocks a tent over and there's a guy just having sex mm. <laughs> and it's like oh it's like they have moments where like oh they don't have to play up the crazy really. <gasps> One of the moments that you're talking about here that really left out at me was, uh, um, what's his name? Wes? Wiz? The Mohawk one. I think it was Wes. We get a moment where it's just like, we caught to them in the camp and somebody's shaving his head for him. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. shaving his head or like behind the ears or something. Yeah, just so that his Mohawk's looking nice. And I'm like, mm. Yeah, or like when his lover dies, when his little twink dies, and he's just like, ah! Yeah, you and know. Lord Humongous <laughs> has to like squeeze him out to yeah, these, knock these... him out. He's like, we do it my way! Yeah, these aren't like slasher movie villains where like they can teleport at convenience mm-hmm. and like get around certain things. Like they, they have to deal with reality. The funny thing is, Lord Humongous uh, has obviously people would associate the the Jason look with the the hockey mask, right? People mm, like look okay, at. Yeah. But what I like about him is, even though it's like this weird, kinky, buff, sex guy, like he's he's this little leather jock strap, and he's like buff, and he's got his he's a freak he's a little freak but he's a big freak I should say. What I like about him though is you have this world. To further lean into the folktale type thing, you have this world where we have this, at this time, this novel, new, fresh take on a post-apocalyptic environment. Let's let, let's just appreciate that for a moment too. That Mad Max was really the trendsetter of like what we associate the post-apocalypse to be in this fashion. It yes. really was the let's put our flag in the ground and make it what it is. But uh, you have that with. A bad guy's going to be this burnt, fucked up, weird BDSM sex guy with a hockey mask, and he's wearing just a leather jockstrap, and he's talking on the megaphone. But from a, a, a simple storytelling mechanism, he, Lord Humongous is what we've seen in many things. He is the barbarian at the wall of the castle, demanding to be let in. We've seen that so many times in. In old stories, in folk tales, in fairy tales, in children's storybooks, in historical accounts of he's basically uh, Ming the you know he could be like you know in 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 old films like even like Ming like the, the Merciless gen- yeah, like is the an example. general at the front of the army kind of yeah yeah, yeah like uh, we've seen that so many in so many things like uh, um, the Hun for example uh, a great ex- uh, great one where you have. In Mulan, you have the head of the Hun guy where he's like this big, big guy and all he wants is just let me in. Just let me in. Or you have uh, everybody's favorite, you know, Till of the Hun and you just go on and on and on. There's so many things, but you spin it where you have it in the lens of the world of Mad Max where it adds that extra wrinkle. It makes it new, it makes it fresh. But does he, as the villain do anything really that different from any of those bad guys we've seen? Like, is he really that different from, say, Darth Vader, where like, I'm the bad guy that's just like, let me get what I want. Yeah, what you're you're basically saying is, like, the the key components of him, other than, like, the general weird vibe you get from him, is he's eloquent, well-spoken, diplomatic, and in terms of violence, he has really good aim. And that's, Mm -hmm. like, the main things about him, but then you give him- Oh, and don't disappoint him. And don't disappoint him, but then you give him, you know, the aesthetic, the the mannerisms, and 
all these interesting weird things and you know he feels very unique even though as you say these are established elements and i this may be myself but uh his big neck th- like his neck brace thing that he has on the 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 hockey mask and the way he physically holds himself he comes across like a knight like a man in armor yet he's got nothing on yeah and because of the big neck thing he has on and the hockey mask the way he just has to move his head about really does remind me of like the 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 black the dark knight the black knight at the gates that is just let me in let me in and they're not going to yeah he's very angry that they're not going. even though yeah he's got like these modern elements on him it's very clear that the vibe he's going for is old-fashioned yeah so what did you think of him he was fun. I really it's it's one of those things also where you know from the, from this modern day we always want to like go above and beyond about certain mm. things. You know the new things have to be above and beyond. And I was almost expecting like him to be in it a bit more, having it up a bit more, having you know more one-on-one scenes with Max or something like that. Mm. But then with the execution of the film, I actually honestly didn't really notice when or slash if he did die. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he uh he's an enigma because we don't get much about him either. We don't know where he came from, what his deal is. We just get visuals of like he's this burnt, fucked up with throbbing head, throbbing yeah, veins. Yeah, the throbbing on the, veins on the back. So. Yeah, and like the strands of remaining hair on his head and he has these eyes underneath that like really expressive those eyes and he's a he's not Australian, you know, he's got that accent going mm. on and obviously the actor it was like, I think he's like some fucking European bodybuilder. Yeah, it sounded like it had like a variation on a few accents going but, on. Uh, yeah, and you don't get too much about him, but he's in the movie enough. And what I like about him is he he, he is very polite. He's like, please let me take the gasoline. I'll let you go. And there's that moment where they're like, you can't trust him. He's going to kill us all. And there are people like, no, no, I think we can trust him. He seems very nice. I'm like, yeah, he does seem very nice. Like, he will kill them, but like... No, no, no. Like he's he'll, very, he'll, very well yeah. spoken. He'll he's let Wes well... take his revenge, though. So yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But he will chain him up like a dog when he acts just naughty. <laughs> <laughs> you love that. I know that's one of your favorite type of things. No, it's it's interesting for sure. <laughs> I really love uh, with Humongous too. Again, to come back to the direction and visuals. It's shots that I remember more than even the character. Like, the shot of him grabbing out his big, long gun and aiming it upwards. Just that shot of him aiming his gun towards the camera and firing it is one of the things I remember from the film itself. It's a little moment, but, like, the uh, like the dissonance, but also joy of seeing what he looks like holding, like, a big gun... And that's something I also want to look at with Mad Max is the world has to operate without guns, but guns do exist, but they're a commodity, you know? Like, Max has his gun, but it doesn't actually work throughout the movie. Someone thanks Max with, like, a reward of a few bullets, I think Mm -hmm. it was. A few shells, and then that comes in handy. And the one time he really gets to fire off a major round was a headshot and a juicy, bloody, nice headshot and you're like yeah because he's had this gun the whole movie but he hasn't had the sh- he hasn't had the chance to shoot it because he didn't he didn't that's why he it. was driving right yeah, yeah 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 that's why he was driving the big truck and uh he shoots the thing and then the car gets like trapped underneath the truck and it's just this whole ordeal but uh so when people do use guns it means something 
because everyone's using arrows and spears and knives and all of these other little interesting weapons and contraptions like the boomerang. But guns are like a big deal. And so I liked when Lord Humongous grabbed out his gun, like it was a special thing too. Like he had it in a nice little case and Mm. he opened it. And that says a lot about his character too. Like he has a nice little case for his nice little gun and he has it put away and he opens it very gingerly, opens (laughs) it and takes it out. And he's like, this, but he's Lord Humongous. Were you expecting him to be... Nothing but a bloodthirsty, slobbering beast of a man. But instead, he's got, like, such weird little choices to add to him that make him memorable. Mm. People love him a lot as... Uh, as he, I think for a while he was the favourite Mad Max foe because he's also in the, the favourite Mad Max movie. A lot of people like a Morton Joe now because Morton Joe does have some really, really fucking excellent moments too. I still prefer Toe Cutter. I just liked his Shakespearean qualities and uh, how much of a relationship he has with Max in that first movie and how, you know, the back and forth between those. I also like that actor a lot. But uh, let's talk about action. This is what it is, an action film. How did you feel about it overall? Yeah, it was decent gripping action. It was nice when it happened. Uh, again, much like the dialogue, it's spaced out. You do have, you know, talky scenes, and then you have action scenes. You know, didn't want just one or the other to be the whole thing. Like, as much as I do remember, I did like Dead End Driving. It was, you know, a bit more on the talky side. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe yeah. towards the end, you had, like, you know, car stunts going on. Right. Um, and I guess, trying to remember the first Mad Max, it was also a little bit more on the talky side. Mm-hmm. Especially since for a lot of it, we are following like the other cops, like Goose and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get more ambitious with what they can do with cars in mm. this. And there is that thing where you know it's real. You know it's real. You know that they had to really flip that truck over and that car really did explode in front of your eyes. You know that these physical things were really happening. So it does add a layer of tension to your viewing because it's like, this was real. This These, these people were really flipping these cars over. Yeah, I remember, to, I think, towards the end of our discussion of the first Mad Max, uh, we were talking about, like, the scene towards the end of the film where, like, Tokata's gang were, like, you know, pole vaulting onto, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a tanker and, like, they were methodical about how they were siphoning uh, gas from it. Mm. Um, and that also does feel like something in this film that was stepped up. Like I said before, that, you know, the the gang is very methodical and it gives them this almost human side where they're not doing, like, a performance. Um, so it feels a bit more threatening in that regard. Um, and like you said, the stunts are, you know, turned up to 10 in this film. Uh, yeah, it definitely does feel like you. Know, he's moving towards, George Miller's moving towards what he wanted to do. Yeah, and there's a lot of you grit your teeth at the stunts because it's like, again, real people really out there doing stuff. And if you read the behind the scenes information, you, you grit them even more knowing that people nearly died making this. Yeah. Wasn't there like a shot in this film where like some guy like genuinely mm-hmm. got into an accident and they yeah. used it because it was too good. It's it's a big shot too. So it's this moment uh, somewhere in the truck chase, I do believe where uh, this guy's on top of one of the cars and it like he, he, he flies through the air, but the stuntman's feet 
hit the car that was on the ground. So he did a little pin. He did a massive pinwheel in the air. Ooh. That shot. Yeah, and he broke his leg in like a million different places and nearly died. And it was like really horrible. But you got to use that shot. You got to use the shot where these stuntmen's. So if you watch that scene again, you see the stuntman's feet hit the the bottom of his feet, hit the thing, and it makes him spin forward and do this massive pinwheel in the air, and he lands, and you just go, "Oh my god!" And, yeah, I'll definitely check that out after this yeah, episode. Yeah, <laughs> it is uh, pretty brutal. The truck that flips over at the end. I think they said, you know, because this was like one of the biggest stunts of all time back then. I mean, remember, it was only like a like what a decade or just less that the French connection came out which had like the most elaborate car chases ever at that period of time where you have this big tanker truck flip over and do all the stuff and they had to tell the driver of the stunt person like not to eat for 12 hours beforehand in case <laughs> they had to go to surgery uh, and you know we said this in the first one George Miller has experience in you know emergency rooms and all of that having worked there in his past so he's very actively minded about like injuries and stunts I mean that's the genesis of the Mad Max thing of like him seeing so many car injuries and and accidents and wounds that's, and that's, things. And he's like, can I do these in a movie but make it, like, cool? That's always fun in a thing where you have, like, the the creator of this entertainment product, you know, had a specific type of experience from a previous line of work. Like, I used to be an undertaker, so I had this mentality mm-hmm. going into this. Right? Yeah. It is awesome. I love the stunt work in this. And the action is very brutal. Lots of quick cuts, but you see everything. I love also, like, it's serious, but also it's a little bit more fun. Like, fun as in funny. I thought you would enjoy the truck chase where they're going around and they're doing all of this. And, uh, like, and then you have just the gyrocopter guy flying around (laughs) and just throwing shit at them from above. It feels very, very silly, but also very fun. It's like the the most minimalistic helicopter you could possibly have. Yeah. (laughs) They have a really hard time getting them down from there because they're not equipped for air battle. (laughs) So, so it's really fun. Or like earlier in the movie when he threw his snake at one of them from above. And the person's like, what the fuck? And then they shoot the driver with the arrows and then the driver just crashes. It's like, oh no, the snake didn't make it. Oh well. He's going to eat that snake. Chekhov's snake. Chekhov, it was Chekhov's snake. They yeah. did really set up the snake. He thought about, the, like, I like when they went back to the gyrocopter and the snake had bitten somebody in the interim of time they were gone. And he's like, oh, I knew that snake was a good investment. Like, <laughs> they just start robbing this dead body. And he had a whole speech to the dog about the snake. Oh, uh, it's not his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. Uh, no, I, I, I adore the action where it just unabashedly, and this is something, you know, we we understand is different nowadays with how action-centric action movies can be like Fury Road being, you know, quote-unquote, a, a, a chase for the entire runtime. That's not true. He does stop and turn around in Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, but... Back then, it was like, wow, they gave you the goods. The last 13, 14 min- like, minute section of just the truck chase. That's just like 13, 14 minutes of the film. And like in this era of, of cinema, that's like, they gave you the goods. It's like 
13, 14 minutes of uninterrupted high-octane real action with real people mm. and real cars and real fire and real arrows. Like, this is 1981, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't think about that when I was watching, but you're right. That is quite a big thing. You don't get cheated out. You go, I buy a ticket for the action movie, and <laughs> it's like 13, 14 minutes of unstopped, like, uninterrupted action car stuff. And there's other action in the movie, too. It's just awesome. Like, even today, I still look at it and go, that's so like, all of the good guys die in horrible ways and, like, unromantic, unheroic ways. Like, the warrior lady, she just gets shot with arrows and then she just slumps over. And the guy, like, is trying to heave her body off and the bad yeah, guy's like, like come here, tug, come here, come here. like a tug of war with her body. And yeah. then they just grab him and two for one. <laughs> they go <laughs> under the wheels and it's just gone. Or the guy gets the uh, grapple hook stuck on his leg and he's like, ah! And then the car that had the grapple hook, they've been killed and now it's just like flipping around and then just like rips the whole back of the thing off and the guy just falls and explodes and it's just ah! Mm. Or the leader come on, come on feral kid, jump in the car with me, we'll live! And then he just gets harpooned in the back and he just slumps in his car and just like it minorly drives off it's just so brutal i love that i love that about the movies of mad max universe where violence is just this blunt force thing where in a way it kind of induces a little bit of laughter in me where just sometimes it is just a little funny that even the good guys they just get they just get whacked in really blunt, unromantic, unheroic, unHollywood fashion. There yeah, is no I... swooping music and people crying or being like, "She did it! She sacrificed herself for the noble purpose." It's just like, no, they just didn't make it. Yeah, I remember, like in the, I think we can describe it like the climax of the second act, where um, uh, Max had left the settlement and mm-hmm. uh, Wes, you know, knocks his car over, kills his dog. Uh, when Max crashed, and he was like really bloody, and he was like, "Oh, the, the, the hero's been really injured." And then the guys come down to the car, and they can't find the body there. It did give me this idea of like a, "Ooh, what's Max got up his sleeve?" You know, the the Hollywood hero. What's he gonna do? Mm. But no, he is legitimately like fucked at this point. He's be- he managed to get behind the rock, but he does not have a plan up his sleeve. Like, he was he's... lucky that his little device still worked. Yeah, like if anything, like the the thing that he prepared ahead of time happened to work in this case. It was happenstance, yeah. 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 Um, what did you think about Max having companions? Because that is a, a new thing in this. He has the dog and he has... The gyrocopter captain. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that? Uh, I thought, yeah, it was it was fun at times. Like, the, the gyrocopter guy is obviously a bit more of a comedic character. Um, Do you remember lingerie? That was a question he asked, <laughs> and I, I really like that. Nostalgic for, yeah, common things like that. Um, yeah, I, I, so you're saying this is... A, yeah, it is. A, it was a big thing in Fury Road 2, wasn't it? There was, yeah. like, the... The bad guy who, like, turned... Well, he didn't turn good, but he was, like, with Max for a lot of it. Yeah, and Furiosa. Yeah. Herself. She was a companion. Even though she's technically the lead, this is, like, Max is kind of rarely the lead in his own movies. It's, like, this is more about these guys, but Max is here, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I... So be helpful. I definitely did walk into the film knowing that, like, oh, you know, after the... Not even after the first man, Max. Max is always kind of... 
you know, a supporting element. You、mm-hmm. get a bit more development on like the other characters in the film. Like we get a lot of you know the settlement people talking、mm-hmm. about what they've been through, their dynamics with each other. So when when I saw that, like oh Max has companions, I wasn't really thinking of that as like a staple of the franchise or anything、mm-hmm. like that. It's just like oh now he's. You know, traveling with this guy. Oh, but not even a、dog. staple of the franchise. But like, what did you think of it in comparison to like the first movie, where he is really alone through most of it? Like, he had his wife or girlfriend, but like when it was just Max doing Max stuff, he was basically on his own. He didn't have people helping him all that often. He would just drive on his own and fuck up bad guys by himself. I mean, maybe at the end of the film, after like his wife had died, but I seem to remember once Goose was gone. He was just kind of on his own. Well, no, because I remember he was like at that farmhouse with like the farmer lady and her weird <laughs> son and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess like out、uh, as companions. It's like、too. once once he's like taking down Tokuta. At that point, I think if he was alone, you know, once he has、yeah. the jacket and the car. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, in the first film, I do think of him as just being around other people. Like, oh, Max, let me show you the car we bought,、mm. or you know, the scenes with Goose, the scenes with Fifi, the best、that's、character. True. Well, yeah, well, was the best character. Now we have Dog, who is the greatest character. <laughs> I love the dog. Many people love the dog. Everybody in the crew and production love the dog.、Uh, the dog was awesome. Very handy. A very good boy, and one of my favorite movie dogs. I think it's one of the great movie dogs where the dog is just like, look at that little mutt. Look at that little <laughs> little man, and he's just so helpful and handy, and he has a personality. And I love the scene where they're driving after they've captured the gyrocopter guy, and he's all tied up, and the dog's holding onto the thing. And if the dog lets go of it, it'll shoot the gun in his face. And I love all <laughs> of that. And、uh, yeah, it, it's a perfect dog to be his companion as well. Like the right breed, it just looks like like just old enough. Like it's kind of gray looking in places, and just just kind of. Rough and around the edges like Max, but I love that dog, and obviously I love the the gyrocopter guy. He's one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise. I love the camaraderie between him and Max, where he's my favorite type. Where he's he's a little worm of a man who is outsmarted and and like through sheer force, meant like through sheer force of the protagonist thrust into being the helpful. Second, and then through happenstances of the story, he actually becomes like a genuinely better person, and has motivated to do the right thing, and actually has dreams and and desires to do things. When at the beginning, all he wanted to do was lay in the dirt and jump up and rob people. That's he was happy doing that. That's all he wanted to do. <laughs> and then he wanted the snake. And he wanted to eat the snake. After a certain point, he was looking forward to eating it.、Um, I, yeah, I like him a lot. Did you have much on him that you wanted to say? Because he's a big component of the film.、Uh, nothing all that new, I guess. But yeah, he was a lot of fun. You know, he's the I, I mentioned before. You know, the the villains they've got the crazy hooniness to them.、Mm. Um, but this guy, he felt a bit more, I guess, sincere in his craziness,、mm. and so that made it a bit fun that he was also, you know, a supporting hero. Mm-hmm. And did you expect him to live? Um, and get the ending he does, where he becomes the new leader. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, did I was I what was I thinking of him? I guess I could have yeah believed it one way or the other, but 
I was surprised that he lived after, especially after his helicopter crashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He or his got, gyrocopter, he, sorry. He got shot down. Mm. But I love how he's just riding around in it like it's a car, just like <laughs> driving around. Like, hey, oh, well, it had wheels on it, so. Uh, I love that. Hey, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I loved um, when Max was stuck in the compound. The entire time I was like, what's what's happening with the guy up there, though? With the gyro guy. Is he okay? And when Max gets out of there and he comes up and he's gone, he's like, where the fuck did he go? And then we have the dissolve into the desert just with the drag marks and you just see he just he just ripped that stump or whatever it is and he's dragging it along <laughs> with him. And then the dog barking at him and just his reaction of like, no, please no. <laughs> well, it's all right. He got to think about lingerie after that. But I enjoy him very much. He's, he's one of my favorite characters in the entire run. I I, I like... Bruce Spence is an Australian, like, just legend. He's been in, like, a hundred-plus things in his career. He was in this, obviously, which, I mean, you know, you could just rest easy if you were in Mad Max 2 because it's like, well, you know, here you go. But he was in uh, the Matrix movies. He was in, like, uh, I think the sequels for those. I think he... I can't remember what he played, but he was in uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace. Okay. He played, um, I don't know what the race is, but he looks like a Nosferatu looking guy, like big white head with like these red stripes up them. And he kind of looks like a vampire. And I know that in the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show, they got that alien design for one of the grand, grand inquisitors. And they made him just look like a big fat soccer ball head, like that alien race. They changed it for some reason. People were really upset. So like, he looks, they look cool in the animated series and they looked cool in the prequels. Why did you change this? And Disney's like, fuck. You. What what part of the film were they in for Phantom Menace? Oh, I cannot remember. I just saw the visual of them. He has like okay. this big red cloak on where the brim of like the, the back of the collar goes like up to the top of their head. Uh, and he has like these wrinkles that go like from vertically upwards. I, I'm sure I'll show you a photo. You And obviously he has big teeth, which Bruce Spence has recognizable teeth and gums. And he was in the extended cut of Lord of uh, the Lord of the Rings: uh, Return of the King. He was the voice of Sauron, the Black Lieutenant, who uh, quite visually recognizable. If you know anything about Lord of the Rings, he's like one of the ghoulish guys at the gate of uh, in that, and he speaks with Sauron's voice and he's just all teeth like like you don't see like he has this helmet on where you don't see his eyes all you see is just like these deformed big teeth and he's just like the smuggest motherfucker where he's just like smugly telling them to go fuck themselves and they can't do anything and and it's all teeth acting it's like who do you get to do teeth acting when you're Peter Jackson and you're working with Australian and New Zealand actors yes Bruce Spence yeah George Clooney's too far away George Clooney's too far away. And he was in Double the Fist. Mm. We did this on the podcast. He was in the second season. He was uh, the mayor of the city that they were dealing with. And then he sent, like, council people after them. If you don't haven't seen Double the Fist, it's all his gibberish to you. But there's a whole episode where they have to deal with, like, council workers coming at their base and attacking them and the council and it's it's very silly that was actually one we liked where they had to do, they had a siege episode against the council workers yeah. and there was like 
different like bin men were vampires and there's like all this crazy stuff. But I'm, he I'm was, mixing up with he, he, yeah the Miles Barlow cult episode. Uh, yeah. But he was uh, he was the one that had the vending machine. And he put coins in it, and the vending machine turned into the assassin lady. That was, yeah, I, that was a thing. Wasn't and I think it? the reveal is he was actually a lizard man because get it, you know, lizard people conspiracy was very popular in 2009. Um, yeah, season two was weird. <laughs> season two wasn't as good, was it? No. Oh uh, well, I. Uh, but no, Bruce Spencer's a legend. He's been in a lot of great things, a lot of classic things, and I just. Adore him here. This is probably still my favorite. It's a lot of people's. He'll be in the third film, but as a completely different character. I remember you were telling me about continuity that, yeah. doesn't exist except for injuries. Like in the third film, Max's eye is fucked up, like it was at the end of this. He has like a like a perforated pupil or something in the third film. So keep an eye out for that. And his silvery blonde streaks on the side of his head go bigger because he gets full mullet in the, in the third <laughs> one. He goes the 80s. full 80s. He goes full 80s. Doesn't it have now. like an iconic 80s song for uh, It's got Tina Turner. Yeah, that's right. She's yeah. the villainess, kind of. And she calls him Raggedy Man. Does she so, wear BDSM clothes? She wears sexy clothes, but I don't know if I could call it wholeheartedly BDSM. Okay. I don't know what to describe her outfit other than very 80s. <laughs> so look forward to when we do Beyond Thunderdome at some point in the future. It does have some great stuff in it. I love Master Blaster, but we'll get to Master Blaster one day. Anything else you want to say about The Road Warrior? Um... Music slapped. We'll just say that the music's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of the the trivia and the behind the scenes, uh, I found it very funny that, uh, and you know, you've gone against this trivia point. I think twice in this episode now, the uh, Wes's companion. Mm. How you know we're calling him like the twink, his lover, mm-hmm. and thing like that, and the. George Miller or someone else were insisting, like, oh, no, 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 he was, like, adopted son. <laughs> sure, like, George. N- the visual language did not give adopted sure, son. Sure, George. <laughs> sure, sure. Your- nice try, George. Yeah, we, um, I mean, you you know people who are adopted sons, right? Were they being chained to their adopted father? Well, uh, we weren't <laughs> in the post-apocalypse when it was happening, were Fair we? enough. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, that's all I've got. Uh, are you recommending this? Are you interested in seeing more Mad Maxes after seeing this? Yeah, I'm interested, especially since I've heard Beyond Thunderdome is kind of like. Well, I mean, maybe the first one is the one that people, you know, no, many that, people, many people don't like Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, but it's kind of, I guess, between the duology, it's the weird one. Oh, not the weird one, but like the odd one out. It's the most Hollywood. Oh, okay. Big budget Hollywood blockbuster with. Stunt casting of someone like Tina Turner to give you a pop song on the album on the soundtrack and right. Mel Gibson is like a big star at this point, and you got like lots of weird, but it's still got like lots of weird George Millery things, and it leans more into like freaky body horror-y things or like deformities, like how Fury Road did. So. Look forward to that. Okay. Talk about Fury Road just for a moment before wrapping this up, because I said we would. There are some ideas that you see here that will flourish, like the flamethrower gun. 
Uh, you see a lot of uses of the flamethrower guns in Mad Max Fury Road, where it obviously all culminates with the... Uh, what's his name? The Doof Doof Warrior? I the think guy with the guitar, Yeah, right? the, yeah. the guitar flamethrower, which... It is as awesome as you think it is. If you haven't seen Fury Road, there's a guy with a guitar that's a flamethrower. We all know it, we all loved it, and it is it is excellent. Is it practical? No, but it was it was fun. It's memorable for sure. And it's memorable. This is coming from a, someone who doesn't remember too much of And it film. was a functioning guitar and flamethrower, so fuck it, why not? Just let it be. Uh there's stuff like that. There's the people chained to the cars up front and all of that. I definitely think, too, that this one, in comparison to Mad Max, leaned into, as we said, the the the, the hoons, the bad guys, having a sense of community to an almost uh, militia-like degree and almost religious-like degree, where Lord Humongous was seen as this saviour figure for them, this leader of great men, for them and so you have that obviously the big huge bad guy with a mask is also a big deal in fury road where you have the big huge bad guy with the mask so yeah you have a lot of like little elements here uh, obviously ramping up of the idea of driving a big truck full of something from point a to point b and uh, having bad guys chase you throughout the entire run and them just fucking things up for you royally and having to micromanage and deal and running around and shooting on the truck. You have a lot of that in Fury Road. That's basically the runtime of Fury Road is, is maintaining the truck's safety as you go from place to place. Uh, and it's interesting, like, George Miller came back to Mad Max after, like, decades away from it and just cracked his knuckles and just said i want to have another go and he gave us one of the best films of that year for sure i think and i made the joke already but like he had his happy feet experience he had his happy it. feet money and he was like i want to use it for one last blowout at mad max if i can and uh let's do road warrior again but bigger yes he started with a having a child in this film then he made a child's film then he made fury road and somewhere he did babe he did the Babe movies. I think he just directed the second one, but produced the first one. So, mm-hmm. and uh, Witches of Eastwick somewhere as well was in the interim <laughs> oh, of that's that right. time. Yeah. Never forget he did Witches of Eastwick and had to work with producer John Peters. Oh, let's not start <laughs> with the John Peters dog again. Um, so we are going to be doing uh, listening people's recommendation and choice for the next one and we have a list and if you have not suggested a film to us don't be afraid to we take them and we add them into our list and our list is actually running a little low so if you want to chuck some more our way make sure to do so uh email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com or leave a comment on any of us on our social medias and we'll add it to the list but currently we have one that's been sitting there for a while mm-hmm. by our good friend and i've never found out how he pronounced it because it's a youtube name uh, Dr. Reshi's or Dreyeshi's. Oh, oh. I don't know if we found out how it's supposed to be. I think it was done. Dr. Reshesh. Dr. Reshesh. He, uh, they recommended to us quite some time ago Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. 
And so that's been sitting I remember there. the title was on there. I forgot that was one of his recommendations mm-hmm. or their recommendations. Uh, yes. I. It's one of those titles like, this is the name of the film. This doesn't sound like a real movie. What's the name again? Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. So it's a motorcycle and a guy from a cigarette company? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, isn't that fun? Yeah. I have no idea about this feature film. Here's something. Okay, I want to play this game with you now. Mm-hmm. So you've got the name of the movie. Two what, brands in the title, yes. What do you think we're going to watch? <laughs> I've never done this. I don't think we've done <laughs> yeah. this, really. What do you think we're going to get from this? I mean... I know. I'm just picturing like a biker with a cigarette. So, <laughs> do you think it will be a good follow-up to Mad Max Two? I hope it's it's a Kevin Smith style film about a man with a motorcycle and a cigarette just pondering about life. No, no, well, well, I think I'm wrong, but I don't know. <laughs> it's from 1991. Uh huh. And um, it's got everybody's favorite actor. Mickey Rock. Okay. From Iron Man 2. From Rumblefish. Oh, really? From Rumblefish? I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh, it's actually got a few people in it. Like, it's <laughs> okay. got fucking Gus from Breaking Bad and Stardust. So that's I was going to awesome. say Stardust, wow. Um, well, Bartek, it's got a motorcycle on the front mm-hmm. and, and a cowboy hat. And I'm sure it's... I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure it's on all the streaming services and everyone's yeah, top oh, ten films course, list. Of course, of course. Uh, so, oh, okay. It's well, Bartek. Uh, uh, people have to turn to a life of crime because a friend's bar is up for foreclosure. I think you can say friend's Bartek. Friends Bartek is up for foreclosure. <laughs> Who's Friends Bartek? Is it is it a biker bar? I got a follow. Where up, you can smoke. I got a follow up question for you to end our discussion on. This is actually for last episode where we talked about the Darjeeling Limited. Mm-hmm. Follow-up question. Did you ever find out what your mum's relationship to this movie was? She never commented on our social media. I, I, I'm waiting. I did ask her because we went out to dinner, the I think literally the night after. Um, and when I told her the title, she just basically responded with like, oh, yeah, I think I saw that. I'm like, yeah, we saw it together. Um I think she just gave like some sort of vague response of like, oh, I remember it being interesting, a bit different, but yeah, nothing oh, okay. too specific. I, I like told you, her you about- You tell she didn't listen to the episode because she didn't leave a comment. <laughs> I, I, um... You're letting me down. You're letting the listening people down. I'm really upset. I, I asked her- I asked, I asked her something like, uh, well, no, I, t- I told her what I remembered of the history of like, oh, I remember you were like making a big deal out of it and then eventually it came out and then we watched it. Um, and she responded to that with like, yeah, and it wasn't really what I was expecting or something like that, but it, it's it clearly- didn't have enough musical numbers. It's clearly like something that was just way in the back of her mind. Well, bring it to the front. All right. That is it. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us, you can rate and review us and make sure to subscribe and follow us on whatever podcatcher you use. We have a YouTube page where we put the videos up as well as some extra little bonus videos from time to time. Uh, and that is all I've got for you. Uh, are you a fan of the phrase guzzoline? This is the first one that I had. Was this? The last movie didn't have guzzoline as a word, did it, or did it? Not that I remember. I think the only time I ever heard the word before was you doing, like, a Lord Humongous impression. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, you're saying it weird. Mm-hmm. Well, you a fan of it as a phrase? A um, little world-building 
Mad Max phrase. It it sounds funny, but I don't think I'd use it if I was in the world. I think I'd just say, oh, yeah, petrol. Oh, there you go. Like, hey, Lord Humongous, it's just called petrol. Come on. Please, Bartek. (laughs) Call it gasoline. And you're like, well, he did say please. And then he, like, kind of chokes me, like, strokes my head. Call it gasoline. And you're like, you're hurting me. And he just says, soz. (laughs) Soz. Oh, well, I guess you did say soz. I did say soz. And then you just knock. And then you knocked out. You you know it's the post-apocalypse. Never mind. End the episode. End the episode. It's over. (laughs) I've never seen Bartek just want to end it because he's so defeated. (sighs) Alright, end the episode. Come on, you haven't ended the episode yet. (laughs)